The major media still treat the Republicans as if they are the party of fiscal responsibility, when in fact all of the evidence of the last 20-some years is exactly the opposite. Getting the public to believe that low taxes for rich people will benefit them turns out to be the best way ever devised to get policymakers to enact those tax cuts. Our massive tax cuts provide tremendous relief for the middle class and small business. The truth is they're rank hypocrites and liars. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. One American capitalist take on how we got into this mess and how we can get out. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. In the last episode of Pitchfork Economics, we talked about uh, the American dream. And is it dead or is it dying? Can we bring it back? And in this episode, we're going to talk to something that is closely related to that, which is the tax cuts for rich people create economic growth. And today, I'm super happy to have my colleague, Jessen Farrell, joining us to talk about that. Jessen has a ton of experience uh, working in the legislature in Washington State, fought these fights a lot. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to chit-chat about tax cuts. Hi there, I'm Jessen Farrell, and I am a former state representative from Northeast Seattle. And in the legislature, I served for five years fighting for working families. And now I work with Nick Hanauer at Civic Ventures. So there isn't a more common claim in our economic uh, discussions than the idea that tax cuts for rich people create growth or tax cuts for big corporations create growth. It's a thing that has been offered to Americans again and again and again and again and again for uh, decades now, starting, of course, with Ronald Reagan and the neoliberals in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and certainly has to be a thing that you heard a lot in the legislature. For sure. I mean, this is one of the great national myths that play out every single day in the decisions of policymakers, that somehow when you're giving tax cuts to the wealthiest corporations, the richest people in the country, that it's going to create jobs and somehow lift wages. And as we know, that's a pernicious lie. And we've gotten to see that play out in real world policymaking across the country. And so as a legislature, you saw this coming at you in all sorts of ways at all sorts of times, right? It's not just cut taxes for us. It takes a bunch of insidious forms probably in real life in in uh, in the day-to-day work of being a state legislator. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you have Washington State, which from the outside probably looks pretty blue, but when you peel back the curtain a little bit, what you see is the most aggressive tax system in the entire country. And what that means is that The poorest among us are paying the largest share of their income towards taxes. And why is that? It's because we have this myth that we believe that if somehow we give a free pass to corporations, if we give a free pass to the wealthiest, we are going to have this uh, utopia around economic growth. And, And that's just not true. What we have instead is a state budget that's constantly careening from crisis to crisis to crisis, even in this state that has so much wealth and so much potential. Yeah. So... We should level set a little bit and just describe in more detail the claim 
um, and the logic of the claim that tax cuts for rich people create growth, and then talk about the evidence. So let's start with the claim. The claim offers this explanation, which is largely that the rich are job creators, and the more money they have, the more jobs they create, and the more money they have, the more money they have available to pay higher wages. And therefore, anything we do as a society to ensure that the job creators have more money, the better off the rest of us will be because they will trickle jobs and higher wages down on the rest of us. And that logic, that economic logic is plausible, like, it, you know, it sounds true, but it's actually not true uh, because, uh, you know, an economy is best understood essentially as an ecosystem and rich people don't create jobs. The economy creates jobs and the jobs are a consequence essentially of a feedback loop between uh, consumer demand and the products and services that businesses create. And if there's no consumer demand, then there will be no jobs that rich people don't create jobs out of the goodness of their hearts, so they don't create them out of thin air. They create them in response to consumer demand. And business owners don't pay people what they can. They pay them what market forces and power relationships require them to pay them. People aren't paid what they are worth. They're paid what they negotiate. And so cutting taxes for rich people, cutting taxes for big corporations, actually isn't the mechanism that increases either wages or the number of jobs in an economy. It's a, it's a bunch of other things. And again, in the interest of level setting, we now have enormous amounts of actual empirical evidence showing that when you cut taxes for rich people, it actually doesn't increase either the number of jobs or uh, the wages that uh, people get from those jobs. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I used the word earlier, the, the myth that we have. You know, it's almost like the Ptolemaic view of the universe, which was that it was Earth-centered. You know, we have this real-world experiment playing out with the Trump tax cuts and the massive amount of money that is flowing to the largest corporations. And we know that it's not going into wages. We know it's not going into R&D. And, you know, Nick, you've talked a lot in the past about uh, changes to stock buybacks. And I would right. love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, what this might have looked like if we had those same regulations that we used to have. What would right. be different now if we had stronger regulations around stock buybacks forcing companies to put money into workers and into R&D? Yeah. So one of the ways that we know that higher profits for rich people don't create jobs and growth is to look at where rich people and big corporations get their money and what they do with their higher profits. And so one of the things we know is that profits as a percent of GDP have gone up a lot over the last 30 or 40 years. They've basically doubled as a percentage of GDP. And if it was true that, that all of that extra profit was going into investments or something like that, well, then there would be a credible claim that this was a useful thing to do as a, from a policy perspective. But in fact, today, between 55 and 60% of those profits are now used just for stock buybacks. 
and another 35 to 40 percent of profits are used for dividends. And so what we know for sure is that when big companies get tax cuts, they don't invest in higher wages or plants and equipment. What they do do is basically return those windfall profits to owners and executives. So it's just an insane amount of money that we are currently allocating just to make rich people richer in our economy um, that could be used for purposes that would be really, really robust. This is going to come as a shock, but you know who else thinks tax cuts for rich people create growth? Our president. Our massive tax cuts provide tremendous relief for the middle class and small business. Hi, I'm Sarah Lebovitz. I'm a producer on Pitchfork Economics. So Trump's pretty adamant about this. In fact, he promised that his tax cuts in 2017 would result in every American seeing an extra $4,000 pay raise. And that's money that'll be spent in our economy. And that was a while ago. I mean, we've paid taxes since then, I hope. So let's see how that's doing. Did you get a $4,000 pay raise last year? No. (laughs) I did not. Not that I'm aware of. I did not. (laughs) No. Oh, no. No. Uh, no. (laughs) No. No. We did not. No. Okay. Thank you so much. That's it. Our next guest is an old friend of mine, Bruce Bartlett, who, among other things, was a Treasury official in the George H.W. Bush administration and was part of the economics team for the Reagan White House. Uh, He was one of uh, the authors of Supply Side Economics, a super experienced uh, economic uh, policymaker, and has become recently a big critic of supply-side economics, which he believed at the time in the late 70s, early 80s was appropriate, but now believes is completely bogus and uh, mismatched for the economic circumstances of our day. Bruce also knows more about tax policy than any single person I've ever met and has a great book out on the tax system uh, that everybody should read called The Benefit and the Burden, which gives you a real picture of the form and function of the American tax system and what we could do to improve it. In any case, Bruce is an awesome guy and a truth teller and has gotten in a lot of trouble himself for being uh, transparent and uh, willing to confront some of his friends and allies. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't we just start off by kind of a general question about what your role was uh, in the Reagan administration and your role in the Reagan tax cuts? My role in the Reagan tax cuts started back in the 1970s. Uh, I had gotten a job on Capitol Hill working for uh, Ron Paul, who was defeated uh, the same year I went to work for him, 1976. And this led me to look for another job, and I found one working for Jack Kemp, a a former professional football player who represented uh, the Buffalo suburbs in New York. And he was very interested in in the tax issue. Uh, And 
he put me to work basically on developing that interest. And uh, in 1977, he asked me to draft a bill that would duplicate the Kennedy tax cut of the early 1960s, and it was known as the Kemper-Roth bill. Uh, Ronald Reagan endorsed it in his run for the White House, and when he got elected, he uh, sent that legislation to Capitol Hill, and it was enacted into law in uh, August of 1981. And then in 1987, I went to work in the Office of Policy Development at the White House, and I worked there for two years and then went over to the Treasury Department where I worked throughout the George H.W. Bush administration. Okay, so you were there at the beginning then, at the creation of the response to uh, what was going on um, economically and what was so different in the 70s, what, what, what was happening then versus what's going on now? What made you think that tax cuts were the way to go? The most important difference between then and now is inflation. We had a lot of inflation. And, and I think people today, you know, many young people have never experienced uh, anything like an inflationary environment. Uh, and many people my age have, have forgotten about it. But it really riveted politicians' attention uh, the way no other economic issue really has since the 1930s. And one of the effects of inflation was to push people up into higher tax brackets. And indeed, taxes were rising very, very rapidly, very substantially, actually mainly for uh, uh, average people. Because if you think about it, if a rich person is already in the top tax bracket, they have no higher brackets to be pushed into, you see. So the, the, the effect of what was called bracket creep was largely on average people. And so the thinking was then what? Why was it going to be such a great solution to high inflation to cut taxes? What was the thinking? Jack Kemp believed that inflation was essentially a monetary phenomenon, and he supported a tight money policy by the Federal Reserve. But he was concerned that tight money would cause the economy to slow down, and it did. It caused a, a big recession in 1980 and another in 1981. And he thought that a tax cut would help cushion the blow and help keep the economy going as it transitioned from high inflation to low inflation. He also thought that inflation was, in a sense, too much money chasing too few goods and services. So if a tax cut led to an increase in the production of goods and services, uh, then it would be anti-inflationary. And one of the things that we forget about the Reagan era is that taxes actually were raised later. So what was what was the story with that? Well, after the 1981 tax cut, uh, everybody was suddenly uh, had their attention focused on the budget deficit. And uh, Reagan supported a big tax increase in 1982 called the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act that raised taxes by 1% of GDP, which was a very uh, large tax increase. And he supported 10 other tax increases in the subsequent years of his administration. And by 1988, he had enacted tax increases that took back half of the 1981 tax cut. So he uh, he was perfectly willing to support 
higher revenues uh, to bring the deficit down. And that's, of course, some a big difference between him and today's Republicans, who will never support one penny of tax increase for any reason whatsoever. Yeah, so that's really become the dogma. And, and you, of course, were kind of there at the creation of that dogma. And I think a little bit about other people have maybe renounced uh, dogma, like, you know, Robert McNamara in the Vietnam War, or, you know, others who've, who've been so famous for, for renouncing. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, what brought you to um, be in a different place around tax cuts in this era, in the George W. Bush era. Talk a little bit about that. Well, my, uh, the, the transition for me began in November of 2003. Uh, that was when the Republican Party, to which I was then comfortably a member of, enacted uh, the Medicare Part D program, which uh, was a huge unfunded uh, entitlement program. Now, I never had any problem with adding prescription drugs to the Medicare program. I just thought it was grossly irresponsible to pass this legislation without a penny of financing. It was just all uh, on the national credit card, a big increase in the budget deficit. And I naively thought that Republicans were opposed to deficits in those days. They talked a big game about that. They still do. What happened? Yeah, well, the truth is they're rank hypocrites and liars. I was waiting for you to say that. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, what uh, what I've learned over the years is that uh, Republicans actually love deficits because they love talking about deficits. They love using deficits as an excuse to slash programs for the poor and the middle class. That's why they cut taxes whenever there's the hint of getting control of the deficit. For example, we had huge budget surpluses at the end of the 1990s. The Republicans just pissed all that away with huge tax cuts that did nothing whatsoever to stimulate the economy. And, of course, they've done the same thing uh, in 2017. And so what, what I call this is something called Star of the Beast, uh, which is a Republican theory that the only way you can cut spending is by having deficits so large that there is no other choice. So Republicans, their policy is to intentionally create large deficits through tax cuts, use those deficits as an excuse to slash benefits for the poor and middle class. When the deficits come down, they simply enact more tax cuts and start the process all over again. And basically, they will continue this until there's nothing left of the safety net till government does absolutely nothing except national defense. And that sounds like a pretty important piece of truth-telling. Uh, what happened when you started saying things like this? Well, what I realized immediately is that deficits were going to get so large, the taxes would have to be increased. I didn't uh, foresee the determination of Republicans to avoid any tax whatsoever, and I thought that they would be forced into being responsible. And I was, at the time, very strongly opposed to a tax increase, so I felt that the the Republican policy was, was contrary to, to Republican policy. Uh, that they were going to bring about a tax increase. Uh, th that didn't really work out, but it did open my eyes, I think, to you know the, the utter hypocrisy of, of the party I belong to. And what happened is I sort of started seeing 
the glass as half empty rather than half full. And having broken with my party on this one issue, I gradually began breaking with them on lots of other issues. And by 2006, I had uh, I publicly declared myself to be an independent and no longer a member of the Republican Party. And I wrote a book highly critical of George W. Bush. And honestly, at the time, I thought I was just the first guy out of the gate and that lots of other conservatives and libertarians uh, who felt like I did about uh, the budget and uh, the deficits and things like that would uh, would follow me out the door. And, uh, and I was shocked when nobody followed me out so the door. So when you call the president an imposter, people don't follow you out the door? Is that what you found? Well, I, I did think that Bush was, was an imposter uh, of, by pretending to be a conservative. I thought he was a terrible uh, – I, I don't want to say liberal, but he was certainly not – uh, a fiscal conservative. He, as I said, had huge deficits. If we had simply kept uh, budget policy on automatic pilot, where it was in January 2001 when Bush took took office, by the time he left office, we would have literally paid off the national debt. Uh, but in fact, the national debt doubled. And it's a source of deep frustration to me that the major media still treat the Republicans as if they are the party of fiscal responsibility, when in fact all of the evidence of the last 20-some years is exactly the opposite. I mean, the only presidents who have really uh, reduced the deficit are Clinton and Obama. Bush and Trump have vastly increased it, yet you cannot get the media to focus on this and talk about the truth of the matter. They still have this notion that re the Democrats are the wild-eyed spenders and the Republicans are the, the sober budget balancers. It's just an utter nonsense. And what would it take to change that? You have a pretty stiff critique of the Democratic Party as well. What needs to be in place to really shift and, and myth-bust? Because as you point out, they're really hypocrites when it comes to spending. What would it well, take? Uh, well, I think Democrats should stop being tax collectors for the Republican tax cuts. I think that what has been missing in public policy since 1989 is a strong and vocal left socialist liberal movement in this country that could pull the Democratic Party to the left the same way the Tea Party and the many, many different organizations on the right funded by the Kochs and, and other rich billionaires that pull the Republican Party to the right. I think what's happened is that both parties have moved to the right, and the Democrats have, have stayed relatively as far to the left of the Republicans as they've always been. It's just that because the Republicans are further right, they're now not really on the objective left at all. They're in the center. Right. Do you have any advice for people out there who might be wanting to be truth tellers themselves, but are worried about becoming pariahs? What have you learned over the years? Well, uh, I, all I can say is things change, okay? I mean, for, when I was young, one of the reasons I joined the conservative movement, the Republican Party, is because the left, the progressive movement, the, do, the Democratic Party, was, was dominant. I mean, it, we were coming out of the great society. We had... We had huge big government programs and high taxes, and the media was was truly quite liberal. 
but that has all changed. It's now 180 degrees opposite. The right is now in a very dominant position in the media and, and in government. And the only thing I can say is if it changed once in one direction, it can change again back into another direction. I would point to uh, the 1880s in American history when the, the robber barons and uh, and so on were were uh, you know very very powerful and that was and it was the politics were very similar to those of today, but that was followed by the progressive era and a movement back in the other direction. So I think you know we're overdue for realignment. And we're glad that you're there storming the barricades with the rest of us. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate your joining us today and your perspective and your willingness to talk about times past and what's going on in the present. And uh, we, I look forward to talking to you again. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. You know, one of the sad but amusing sort of natural experiments that unfolded in our country over the last uh, 10 years was uh, Kansas Governor Sam Brownback's uh, famous trickle-down experiment. And he was swept into office in 2010 with a simple promise to provide, quote, a shot of adrenaline into the heart of the Kansas economy. An unfortunate metaphor borrowed from Pulp Fiction, where he's a coked-up hitman and Kansas is a junkie who's ODing on the floor. The only difference being in the movie, the junkie lived. The economy of Kansas, unfortunately, has not been so lucky. And he basically massively cut taxes for rich people, uh, betting that that would yield enormous amounts of growth. And now it's almost a truism in economic circles because the, the results were so catastrophic that, in fact, Kansas went into a tailspin. Public investment went down. Growth went down. Uh, job growth went down. And in places like California that did exactly the opposite, that raised uh, taxes on rich people to an astonishing 13.3%, California now enjoys the fastest growing economies in the nation. Kansas has one of the slowest. And again, you know, this speaks to what the true dynamics of a market economy are. When you raise wages, when you make public investments, when you educate people well, that's what drives innovation, demand, and an economy. It's interesting to hear what experts think about tax cuts, but we really wanted to understand what public opinion is, and for that, we called our friend Richard Kirsch. Richard is the director of Our Story, the hub for American narratives, and has a better grasp than anyone on what Americans think about progressive issues. Here's his report on recent public opinion polling on taxes. The Trump GOP tax cuts have been really, really unpopular. And, you know, again, that's sort of against the common wisdom. Well, tax cuts must be popular. But the reason they're not popular and they couldn't run on them is because the majority of people in this country got and understood fully that the tax cuts weren't mostly for working families in the middle class. They were almost entirely for the very wealthy and big corporations. And people understood that. It wasn't just a talking point from Democrats. People actually believed that. And they actually saw seven out of 10 Americans, um, including half of Republicans, said that they believe that the vast majority of the Trump GOP tax cuts go to the wealthy and corporations. And in fact, nine out of 10 Americans believe that they should close loopholes for the wealthy and corporations. When you ask people, who does the tax system benefit? They say it benefits the wealthy. They say it benefits large corporations. 
It doesn't benefit working families. It doesn't benefit the middle class. So people are really clear about that. Um, we can also ask, though, about the economic argument that Republicans make, trickle-down argument, give more money, tax cuts to the rich, that'll boost the economy, give more money to corporations, they'll, they'll raise wages and create jobs, that will boost the economy. Where, how do people think about that? Well, first of all, the trickle-down idea with the wealthy, people totally reject. Less than 3 out of 10 people, only 28%, agree that lowering the taxes on the wealthy will grow the economy. So that's 7 out of 10 Americans who reject the core idea of trickle-down economics for the rich. And that's every demographic group. When you're at 72%, it means men, women, whites, black, urban, suburban, rural, working class, college educated, everybody rejects that idea. So that's pretty amazing. Now, when it comes to lowering taxes for corporations, people are more divided. Because, again, they've heard the story about businesses of the job creators, so they think maybe that'll be true. Um, but it's divided, and it's divided a lot, a lot of partisan grounds, but not entirely. So white men who went to college, they tend to believe that, but then they also then people who run corporations and benefit from uh, the corporate tax cuts directly in terms of their own paychecks and bonuses. On the other hand, white men who did not go to college, they don't think so. They don't think giving tax breaks to corporations, lowering their taxes is going to grow the economy. And again, one thing to do is give people a choice, give people a different story and see what they say. So if you say to people, choose between these two statements. One is that only a fraction of corporations have given their workers bonuses. and spend, They spent $200 billion on stock buybacks to benefit their CEOs and wealthy shareholders, as opposed to the tax cuts were used to give bonuses to people and raise wages. Um, again, a margin of 58% say no. The corporations use the tax cuts to give their shareholders and their CEOs bonuses. They didn't use it to give raises. The other thing in terms of the economy is what really would be done with this $2 trillion in tax cuts that mostly the wealthy and big corporations got? Well, people reject the idea that it's going to help the economy. Um, what they do think is that a big problem is that it's going to hike the deficit. And in hiking the deficit, it's going to endanger Medicare and Social Security. And then if you had $2 trillion, the government should do much better by investing it in our future if we want to boost the economy. So build roads, build new schools, uh, build high-speed internet, build the infrastructure that for our future. Uh, be sure we have good places to educate our kids and also control our health care costs, which people see as a huge problem. And that actually argument about how we spend money, what the government should do to boost the economy by spending money in infrastructure, investing in the future, was the argument that most changed people's minds who had been for the tax cut when they heard that argument that, no, this doesn't make any sense. I'm more concerned about my kids' future. What's on my mind as you're talking about all this is why are these myths so deeply held, given that we have these real-world experiments now? We can look at Kansas and how miserable economic uh, growth has been. You can look at the Trump tax cuts. Why are these myths so closely held, and what do we do about it? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it's not hard to understand why the myths uh, perpetuate themselves, and that is because— for a small group of people, 
um, the most important thing in the whole wide world is to get people to continue to believe that if ta- that tax cuts for rich people create growth. People and, like their money. Yeah, is that the <laughs> absolutely. Idea? And as we said before, these claims aren't made because they're true. They're made because they're effective. And getting the public to believe that low taxes for rich people will benefit them turns out to be the best way ever devised to get policymakers to enact those tax cuts. And no amount of evidence that you can show somebody will talk them out of the idea that tax cuts for them will, won't result in growth. I mean, it's not fair to say that everybody um, is unmovable by evidence, but there's certainly a, a large group of people, the folks at the Chamber of Commerce, are certainly not going to look at the data and all of a sudden say, oh my gosh, we have been wrong. Yeah, they Actually, don't like the data, no, as it turns no, out. They're never going to say that. They're, they're never going to say, oh, good golly, we've now looked at the empirical evidence and tax cuts for corporations don't create growth, therefore we should have uh, higher taxes on corporations. They're just never going to do that. And that's just, that's just reality. But that does not mean that the general public shouldn't be aware of the empirical reality and, and have um, the information uh, necessary to hold their uh, legislators, their political leaders accountable to a to a reasonable tax system. Yeah, and it just, you know, when you really think about it, it just makes common sense. When regular people have money in their pockets, they spend it in their local communities. And when wealthy corporations are putting money back into the pockets of shareholders, you know, how many planes do you own? Yeah. And what happens to that money? Exactly. And what's really surprising is how well understood this is the Brookings Institute looked at data from 1945 to 2010 and found that, and I'm going to quote, neither the top income tax rate nor the top capital gains tax rate has a statistically significant association with real GDP growth rate. You know, in their conclusion, the the authors basically bluntly exposed, trickle down for the myth it is, and I quote, the argument that income tax cuts raise growth is repeated so often that it is sometimes taken as gospel. However, theory, evidence, and simulation studies tell a different and more complicated story. And, you know, again, it's so interesting to watch these fights, these public fights unfold, uh, because uh, you, you know, that the, the, these same lies are repeated again and again and again. And again, you know, the public's just going to have to learn to, to, to confront these lies and to try to push legislators to do a better thing. Yeah, I was thinking last night about the progressive movement, you know, in the 1890s and the turn of the last century and how that culminated in a constitutional amendment authorizing the income tax and just what it took Right. over 100 years ago to end up with that kind of political heft and power where you actually put in the Constitution that you can levy an income tax. And so what is it going to take to get us to that, yeah. you know, that change, that yeah, robust political that's movement? Right. And what's fascinating about that historical fact is that if you actually look back at the public arguments being made at the time, yep. right, to enact an income tax in the first place, the business community was saying the same things then that they said now, is that if you enact an income tax, it will be the end of business, it will kill all the jobs, we'll all go out of business, it's the end of capitalism, and so on and so forth. And all we did was get bigger and more prosperous from there. 
Yeah, and, and, yeah, exactly. And it's just the same arguments made again and again and again and again and again. And, you know, they've never been true and they will never be true in the future. Yeah, and you get so. to look at those real world state by state experiments. You know, if, if Washington had the tax code of Idaho, its red state next door neighbor, right. we'd have a much more progressive tax code and right. we'd have a much more stable revenue base to right. pay for to pay for services that people want. So the politics, I think, you know, the people get it, but on the, at the same time, we have these closely held beliefs that are really hard to change. Yeah, cool. So next time on Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk in detail about another one of the tenets of trickle-down economics, regulation. Do regulations kill productivity and growth? And we're going to be discussing that with my friend Robert Reich. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.